Welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is the Out of the Park podcast series. We invite you to join us for other programming you can find on our website at www.framparkcenter.org. Join us. Welcome to the Out of the Park podcast series brought to you by the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life. My name is Nate Smith. I'm the communications associate here at Pinnacle Presbyterian Church. Today we have with us our very own Dr. Mike Hegeman talking to us about the Bible and its many translations. Mike? One of our main focuses here at the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life is uh, the Bible itself and the many ways that we encounter, experience, read, interpret, and shape our lives around the Bible. And so what I was fascinated by this last weekend was encountering some medieval manuscripts of the Bible. And where that happened was in New York City, in Manhattan, at the J.P. Morgan Library and Museum. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about J.P. Morgan. He was a lifelong Episcopalian, and he had a lot of influence over the Episcopal Church in Manhattan in the late 19th century, early 20th century. But one of the things that we're most noted uh, about him is that he was a collector, a collector of art and manuscripts, things that were worth, he thought, were worth preserving. And so I'm grateful for him and his efforts because it afforded me the opportunity to see some of these great medieval biblical manuscripts up close and personal. You know, when you go to seminary and you you do all this work in studying the Bible, the history of the Bible, what you see is what comes to you in modern books, right? The research that people have done. And uh, we don't get to see some of these um, biblical manuscripts so close up and personal And so that's what was really exciting about that. Even though it's difficult to read these, it's wonderful to see uh, a thousand years ago, 800 years ago, what how people were transmitting uh, and transmitting biblical texts in such a way that others could read them, preserving the faith and transmitting it. And so uh, I want to tell you a little bit about a couple of these Bibles that I saw. One of them was... uh, all in Latin. It had to be about 900 years old and uh, European manuscript. But what's great about these is that not only do we have the text, which, you know, in most what we have today, almost anybody could have a Bible, right? Uh, In those days, to have a Bible was a precious thing and they were treated as precious objects, you know, that uh, people Maybe one one big, nice big Bible in a, in a town or city uh, was what people had. And so because of the production of a Bible, handwritten manuscripts on parchment and uh, or on, on calf skin, you know, all of this stuff, what it takes is so it's a huge production process. And so to get these Bibles um, took could take. 10, 15, 20 years to produce these, not only because they were scribes were transmitting the the language and the words, but they were also illuminating them. And that's what's so remarkable is that in that day, they thought them so precious and the words so powerful that they put them next to images so that folks who could not read the text could engage the text with pictures. And maybe that's one way that went about it. But I think there's always this instinct to create, uh, to startle the imagination along with biblical texts. Because these Bibles a thousand years ago were so precious, 
you know, and there were so few of them. It means now being able to get so close to one and to see to see the images still a thousand years later leaping off the page in vibrant color uh, is really quite remarkable. And so, I know I love that idea of putting together. You have words which create pictures you know, themselves and then these images right next to each other. And one of the things I found so fascinating as I was looking at this is that I thought, okay, let me see if I can read any of this. And so a thousand years ago, most likely any Bible was only going to be written in Latin. You know, the, in the Western Europe, that was the language of the faith. We see with what care people prepared these biblical manuscripts to write by hand, to transmit text, and to spend hours and hours and hours creating, you know, very vibrant images. And so as I would look at these and I find a couple of words that I might recognize and then just take out my phone and do a, a Google search, right? Where is it put a couple of those words together and say something like um, the Vulgate? You know, this is the Latin form, the uh, Latin version of the Bible from the 600s onward. And so there pops up a text and I figure out, oh, this is from the book of Revelation. And then to go find what I have in my hand in front of me on my phone and then look back at the manuscript and see things like the the, uh, the scribes uh, use a lot of shorthand. You know, they they cut words short. And like if, uh, like say the word tempus is there, it's meant to be there you might get T-E-M-P and then a squiggle at the end, which you know is supposed to be the U and the S. And so what makes these texts difficult to read is there's a lot of this. And a lot of times the word Christ itself is shorthanded, you know. And so uh, I just kind of like a, almost like a kind of a biblical archaeologist just with working with the words, trying to read uh, this older script and to figure out, Oh, look at all the ways that these scribes made it shorthand. So you get more text on a page when you're using uh, shorthand. So it just it's just kind of that process of, of discovery, even encountering these scripts, these manuscripts and looking at them and looking at the pictures, but also looking at a short blurb of a text and say, what is this? And to see with what care uh, these scribes worked to say, we have such respect for the word that we want to get as much of it on the page as we can, and they're using shorthand. You know, the these first manuscripts that I looked at are were, again, 900 years old, written by hand. It wouldn't be too long before we get Mr. Gutenberg and the movable type uh, printing. And after that point, one of the things that comes along is that uh, Martin Luther translates the Bible into German, and he's only a hundred years after the kind of the, the real beginnings of, of movable type printing, but he uses that to his advantage to promote uh, Protestant ideas and to promote uh, the lit biblical literacy by putting the Bible into vernacular, a language that people could speak, and then printing as many as possible and disseminating these Bibles to as many people that could read or potentially read. And so we see, along with these German reformers, they were also educators, and they said, we have to reform education and teach teach everybody to read. And that was part of their purpose in teaching everybody to read is so that they could read the Bible. And uh, so... 
this is I'm gonna I've skipped over something that happens between these 900 year old manuscripts and these manuscripts of the 1500s with Martin Luther printing them you know mass producing them at the beginnings of that whole mass producing process is this other manuscript that I got to see and I was really excited to be able to see what we call the Whitcliffe Bible now Whitcliffe was an Englishman in the late 1300s. He had the idea, so this is like 200 years, almost 200 years before Martin Luther, is that Whitcliffe said people need to be able to read the Bible on their own. And so he said, I'm going to translate it into English. And the thing was is that you know, the Bible had existed in parts of the Bible, had existed in English already by this point, Wycliffe's in the 1380s. They had existed since the late 800s. In the 800s and the 900s, those folks we call the Anglo-Saxons were translating the Bible into their vernacular. We can't read it. I mean, you know, it's, it's so far off of, of our English today so that we can't read it. But during that time period, after that time period, the, the Roman Catholic Church says no Bibles in any language except for Latin, right? And so they stamp out any uh, efforts to do that until, and for the English language at least, until John Whitcliffe comes along in the late 1300s and he says, no, 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 I believe the people should be able to read the Bible in English. So what's happened to English at this point, though, is it's no longer Anglo-Saxon. It's been invaded by thousands of French words, right? And so for, uh, between 1066 and 1380, so we've got 300 years going on here, the English language has been transformed by French, right? And so new vocabulary, a new way of speaking. And so um, uh, John Whitcliffe himself would not have been able to read uh, the Anglo-Saxon versions of the Bible from 300 years before him, his time. So he uses the language of his day, which is a hybrid between that Anglo-Saxon and French, with lots of Latin words thrown in too as well. And he writes in the language of his own day, and that his his Bible for us would be very difficult to read. So before we get back to a little snippet of his own writing, is to talk say, okay, Wycliffe writes in the late 1300s a version of the Bible. That's a big task, right? And um, after he dies, though, the church responds and says, wait, he shouldn't have done that. And uh, they want to stamp out this effort to put the Bible into everyday language for people to read. And so all the things that they do, his followers do a further update. I think 20 years after his death, they update the language a little bit more. And then there's a mass suppression of that. Some people are killed uh, and arrested and uh, tried and executed for having these Bibles and for disseminating these Bibles in that Middle English language. And so then, so that's 14, let's say that's 1420 or so. Not until the 1520, there's a man named Tyndale in England under the, the, during the time of King Henry VIII who wants to, says, this effort to bring the Bible back into English. Again, have another translation in, in the English language. King Henry VIII, at this point, is still siding with the church in Rome, says, nope, that's a bad thing you did. And they, even though Tyndale flees to the continent out of England to he is tracked down and arrested and executed uh, for having translated the Bible into English. But it wasn't very long after that that um, 
King Henry VIII kind of does a, a 180 on that. And he's like, oh, okay, having the Bible in English is actually a good thing. And so throughout the remainder of the 1500s, we have other people translating the Bible into English. We have a guy named Coverdale. And we have the, the Bible that the pilgrims read and brought to the New World is not the King James Bible. That comes actually later. And so the Bible of the the Bible of the Pilgrims uh, is is one that precedes. I think it's the Coverdale Bible, but it precedes the King James Bible. And so there's actually again another one in the late 1500s. The Catholics are saying, "Wait, those English-speaking Protestants are creating new English Bibles. Let's do a, a Catholic English Bible." And there's one that they do that in the late 1500s. But then we get to, in you know, between 1600 and 1611, uh, a group of people under King James authorization to bring a, what we call now the, the authorized version of the Bible or the King James Bible. Was it that it was more mass produced? Is that why King James Version is a little more prominent as far as translation is concerned? It's a, probably a long history about, you know, how the King James Bible becomes the number one English English language Bible, even for the last 400 years. Um, but part of that is mass production, but also it has to do with authorization in the sense of the the Church of England under King James, the, the King James, the first King James, the sixth, uh, says this is the Bible and they put it in every church under lock and key. They've chained it down to the pulpit, you know, often so that they wouldn't walk off. But then this is the authorized Bible. And so over time, it slowly replaced the the Coverdale Bible and other versions of, of the, we say, the 16th century, other versions. Um, and so as we as we just kind of discover this whole history about the Bible, it's an immeasurable kind of treasure to be able to get within a few inches of these things and to see the, see these ancient manuscripts and to see the development of the Bible. So up to the King James Version uh, that a lot of us are familiar with today, we've seen a lot of translations already, a, yeah, a lot right, of which yeah. we don't talk about. Right. We don't talk about the Anglo-Saxon, and often there are two main Anglo-Saxon versions, like kind of like you, we know that like within England itself, there are all kinds of different accents, right, and different di- dialects. Uh, there were two main dialects of Anglo-Saxon in which the, the Bibles the Bibles were translated, uh, mostly just the Old Testament and the Gospels. So, but when Whitcliffe came in the 1380s, he translated the whole thing, and so this is this is almost like trying to read a Latin manuscript for English speakers today. If you could see the script, you would uh, you would you probably be completely puzzled. You might recognize the letter B uh, or in the word but B U T, right? But a lot of this is like the uh, there's a, a letter that looks like a V, which is actually a TH. And where the way we have it today is if you ever say a sign of ye old candle shop, right? If you ever seen that ye old candle shop, that V got a tail and kind of looked like a Y, but it's actually a TH. And so it's really the old candle shop, the. But we somehow, because it looks like uh, it used to look like a V and then like a Y, they would, you know, 600 years ago, they would have said the or the, but but we say ye, ye old candle shop, right? So that's one of the things too, just simple things, but uh, each, the spelling is so widely different from ours. Um, and some of the, that's the number one thing. And some symbols that just don't, we don't have today, like the letter G 
doesn't look anything. They have a letter G that we would recognize, and then there's another one that's softer, kind of a R sound. A R. Uh, and so we have to you have to learn some of these, uh, like the the word B, what we'd say B Y, like by by the way, is spelled B I. But and let me just read a little bit of this. That, um, and etch etch of us gras ist given, right? To each of us, to each of us, grace is given. To, uh, to etch of us. Grasa is given. Uh, be uh, be the say be the measure of the giving by the measure of the giving of and now here's another shorthand of the Christ. It's a, you can, it just has three letters. You have to figure out. Oh, that's Christ. All right. For which thing he giveth? Oh, for which thing he saith? He standeth on high. And, uh, you know, you have to, each one of you have to figure out there's one letter for G-H instead. And so, uh, I don't know, I get, you can hear maybe the excitement in my voice as I read this and saying, I always loved puzzles, you know, and try to figure out what is this and, and how do we, how do we read that? It's not many people would, con- not many people would consider the Bible to be a puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, maybe, maybe a lot of people would think that's the puzzle, but a sense of overall. But what I love about this is that seeing, knowing that this, Whitcliffe Bible. And so there were many copies made. And so I can't say that this one was penned by John Whitcliffe, but it was, they, he, there was this movement before Martin Luther and the printing, I mean, the printing press of Gutenberg and all that was able to disseminate and hand out a lot of Bibles. These Whitcliffe followers hand wrote out many Bibles in this Middle English language, and they did so at the peril of their own lives. Right. Mm. And some of them, uh, many of them were arrested, tortured and killed for passing the Bible out in the English language. And so the excitement of that and realizing uh, the development of the Bible and its, and, its, and its journey into English as we have it today includes these major moments. And uh, the King James Bible is another major moment, but. There were already five or six major translations between 1520 and 1610, uh, when right before the King James. And then after King James, boy, we've had a huge kind of burgeoning explosion of English language translations of the Bible. I was going to say that uh, the translations haven't stopped. We still have uh, many more versions being translated today. Yeah, and just one of the most remarkable ones probably is the Message Bible. Uh, and that's a... In some ways, a paraphrased Bible, it can be as powerful as a word-for-word translation uh, because it captures the imagination. It startles the imagination, like the uh, these illuminated manuscripts from so long ago, you know, where the pictures, you had words that, and pictures so close together, startling images, bright colors, uh, vivid portrayals of things. Uh, that too, we we you know we see most Protestant Bibles today, or maybe, I mean most Bibles today, there's very few pictures unless they're for children, right? And so uh, we use we can use language to startle the imagination as well. And so Eugene Peterson's translation of the Message Bible is one that uh, I think sometimes I put side by side with a, a, a different version of the Bible. His poetic or his startling language kind of uh, makes me see things and hear things in new ways. There's a phrase used pre-digital age in video production called generation loss. Uh, and that means you make a copy of a copy of a copy 
along the line, you 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 lose the quality. There's some corruption along the way. Yeah, right? you, 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 you lose something along the way. Have you seen, through these various translations, have you seen anything lost? Right, you know, and... What's interesting is that there's always, in translation, there's always something lost and something gained. Uh, and the thing is that the manuscripts that people had of the different manuscripts of a Bible in Greek, the Bible in Hebrew, uh, just these, and how these then went into Latin and then multiple languages, there's always changes. And in our own time, there's so much research that can be done by comparing 2,000 years of manuscripts to say, what is the best translation or of of these texts. And some people get very upset because sometimes now uh, an entire verse might disappear from the most modern translations. And somebody says, oh, this is a terrible thing. The thing is that what we've discovered is that, because somebody did this recently, I saw on, on the internet, somebody was so angry that uh, the, a verse that said something like, Jesus came to save the lost, had been taken out of so many modern Bibles. And a person commenting on this, because he said, this is terrible, because you can see, and he names all those 16th century English translations and King James, and he says, that verse is in all of these. Well, what he, what he, this person kind of fell short from is saying, yeah, it may be in those 16th century manuscripts, but it doesn't exist in the earliest Greek manuscripts. And we say it's it's borrowed from the Gospel of Luke and put into Matthew sometime 600, 700, 800 years after the death of Jesus, right? And so modern scholarships allows us to see how the Bible has changed, uh, where the corruptions could be uh, over time, and tries us to to get us to see this is what our best understanding of what the biblical text is, and it takes thousands and thousands of manuscripts and all of those scholars that are working on that. And so these medieval manuscripts uh, really speak to the best that people were able to do in their time, you know, and saying that they're witnesses to, um, I don't know if we could say the continuity of of the of the Bible, but certainly the trajectory of the Bible. You know, I think how does where does it start? How does it come together? How does it change over time? I'm grateful for all of those people who have dedicated their lives to helping us see that what are the best ways of understanding uh, the biblical text. When we're talking about God's word. It's a it's it's a quite a big feat to be able to translate it to its fullest right. uh, potential. Uh, will there ever come a point where you think? Um, there will be too many translations. In other words, do you, it, will there reach a point where we, we just have to stop translating and just take it, <laughs> no, take it as is? I'll, I'll, I'll say one thing is that, you know, I grew up in the, for a number of years with my family in the South Pacific. It was an American military base, but the local people spoke a language called Marshallese, right? And um, missionaries, uh, English-speaking missionaries, had gone into these islands in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and had translated the Bible into Marshallese of, let's say, 1900, right? Um, by the year 2000, this was you know, even the 1960s when I was there, but uh, in the late 1980s, they found that they had to translate the Bible again because the Marshallese language had evolved and changed so much in 80 years, 100 years' time. So the Bible basically translates um, 
per culture. Uh, as mm-hmm. culture evolves, so does the so do the translations. Absolutely, you know, and that's really important. And people often ask me, what is the best translation of the Bible? I might name five or six of them. We always say well, a translation reveals and hides something all the time because you have to choose a word instead of a range of words to translate something. So it's really important to see over time what is the meaning of this word. You know, like uh, in the Anglo-Saxon Bible, they didn't use the name Jesus in, for the, in the New Testament. They translated what the, his name meant into Anglo-Saxon. So instead of saying Jesus, they wrote the healer. And that time that word also meant savior, the savior healer. And so um, they were trying to find equivalents in their own language to help people understand who Jesus was. And every concept somehow gets translated. And yet, every time the Bible is translated into a different language and culture, there are going to be things that in, that don't exist in that culture. And so, a word like angel um, doesn't get translated because the, the concept of angel doesn't exist in all of these new cultures. And so, it just gets used. So, Latin borrowed the word angel. And uh, and so and then all these other cultures, Anglo-Saxon Bibles, because there isn't a word for that thing. And so we see the Bible can bring new ideas and thoughts into a culture. But every culture then puts a shape and a spin on the language it uses to translate the Bible. And because English language is always evolving, we will always need new English translations of the Bible uh, because our understanding uh, changes and is shaped by cultural, all kinds of cultural influences. Through the Bible is a symbiotic relationship between man's culture and and God. Yep. I mean, that's the sense of how is it, if we think of it along those terms, is it how is what we we speak of in theological terms, the eternal word of God, right? The eternal word of God. How does it become uh, contextualized in every culture? So it takes, it's we call it, it's in some sense incarnational. The fact that the Bible uh, the Word of God, we say, is incarnated in Jesus Christ. It takes human flesh and shape and size and form. So, too, the Bible is incarnated into each and every culture as that as we can bring it into it. Um, and so we say it's given flesh. You know, it's given it's given a body. It's given life mm-hmm. uh, as we translate as this word comes into each culture, and every culture has a context. And so scripture both shapes cultures into which it goes, the words go, the word of God goes, but also each culture shapes our understanding of the Bible. I heard recently that uh, the Cherokee language, a hundred and something years ago, had no word for debt, debt, like do you two, and because and f- it was so kind of devoid of our understandings of cash and finance that it, um, it translated uh, the Lord's Prayer into something like, Forgive those who stray as we as we forgive those who stray away from us or something. It's like you had they had to find something equivalent, even though the words wouldn't exactly match. But what is the concept here? If if I understand of being a debtor doesn't doesn't, you know, doesn't fit. So finding what we call dynamic equivalent within the culture to the idea. Let's drift for a second into subjectivity here. Mm -hmm. And if, Mm -hmm. let's say, you were on a deserted island and you could have only one translation of the Bible, which would you prefer? Well, um, I am most familiar with the New Revised Standard Version uh, throughout my life. I grew up with a Revised Standard Version, a New Revised Standard Version. Now there's a New Revised Standard Version updated edition. 
so perhaps that. The reason I would do that is because I know the language behind it. You know, I know the, I know its history. I know how it was shaped and formed. And so I can read it and I can say, oh, no, it's not. Oh, that's not exactly the way I'd word it. But I would do that with any Bible, right? And so I, I would do it because it's language most familiar to me. And I think the, the scholarship behind it is very strong. Well, we're approaching the end of our podcast here, Mike. Anything else you'd like to add? Long ago, a man we now call St. Augustine, uh, when he was a, a young man, and he heard, he heard a voice that said, take up and read, take up and read. He was not a Christian, and he heard this voice. So he equated that, seeing the voice saying, take up the Bible, take up the Scripture, and read it. And that's the number one thing I would say. You know, take up Scripture, read it, encounter it, talk about it with, with others, be in conversation, explore, read scholarship about it. But I would also say then, let Scripture have its way with you. Wise words, Mike, wise words. Thanks so much for speaking with us today, Mike. And thank you for listening to the Out of the Park podcast series. I'm your host today, Nate Smith, communications associate here at Pinnacle. And we were just listening to our very own Dr. Mike Hegeman give us a breakdown about the many translations of the Bible. Please tune in with us next week for another episode of the Out of the Park podcast series brought to you by the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining us at our Out of the Park podcast series. If you like this program and would like to check out more, go to our website at www.framparkcenter.org.